Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, recording this on a July evening in my home, is my friend Thomas McConkie. Welcome to the podcast, Thomas. Thanks for having me, Richard. And just background, um, I've shared this in the podcast, but uh, I served as a YSA bishop in the last year of that assignment, I was going through what I call a mini faith crisis. Some dominoes for me fell um, regarding my feelings about the church. They hit dominoes that had really deep roots, so it didn't last very long and it wasn't very extensive. But I had someone, it may have been my brother, that recommended three books to me Mm. that I read, read, and all three of them were very helpful. And your book, Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis, was very helpful for me. I've read it a couple times and it was one of three books I read. I read When Mormons Doubt by mm-hmm. John Ogden, mm-hmm. um, and I read Planted by Patrick Mason. So if any of our listeners are looking for wonderful books to read, I couldn't find your copy of the book, Thomas. So either I gave it to somebody oh. or it's in a seat back of a Delta plane well, somewhere. I love to hear that. Hopefully it's floating around somewhere and someone else is making use of it. <laughs> so I really appreciate Thomas being on the podcast. I, my goal with this podcast is that um, those of you that are sort of navigating what, however you term that, a faith transition, a faith crisis, or just complicated parts in our church, this podcast will help you um, with the things Thomas will che- teach. And I hope those of you that are trying to support people, a spouse, a parent, a child, or if you're a local leader trying to support others that are navigating this space, that the things Thomas will share will be helpful for you and give you other insights. And so that's, and just for all of us to build our faith in Heavenly Father and Christ through the things Thomas teaches. So is that a fair introduction? Well, it's a high bar. Now I feel like I need to teach something. I have a feeling just in our interaction, things will start to manifest in mysterious ways. I think they will. (laughs) Tell us, just give us your station in life, where you grew up, married, single, age range, and your profession. Yeah. Um, I was a late bloomer. I grew up in Salt Lake City, mostly, and um, I got married just a few years ago at the age of 36. That's awesome. I'd laugh about being a late bloomer because, you know, like, I did everything, like, really last minute. Like, in high school, I ended up getting my Eagle Scout, but it was, like, a month before I turned 18, and I barely fit into my uniform because I was bulging out of it. (laughs) I just, I'm on a different timetable, I guess. But (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's all right. I mean... You know, we are who we are. But uh, yeah, I grew up locally, um, traveled really from about the time I turned 18, 19, was traveling a lot and was mostly outside of Utah and mostly outside of the United States till I was about 31. Uh, my only sister invited me home from, uh, I was living in Shanghai. She invited me back for a wedding. And I came back to the wedding and I just had this feeling like, oh no, I need to stay here. And I'd been gone a long time and I think really avoided being back in Utah and Salt Lake. And I just felt really strongly like I needed to stay and really happy I did. It's been a really uh, blessed time in my life to be back here in Zion. So Tell us, um, before we went live, uh, Thomas kind of talked to me. I Thomas stepped away from the church at age 13 and stepped back in the church at age 32, so roughly two decades out of the church. And as I read Thomas' story of sort of why he left and why he came back, it was very helpful for me, and I've heard you speak a few times, and I just thought that story would be very helpful for our listeners. 
as well as while you're sharing that story, you know, <clears throat> keep us up to state, up to speed with the geography, where you're living. Yeah. I, our listeners get, would be interested in just where you've been living <laughs> all these years. This could get complex. Um, so, I mean, I'll start with the age of 13. Um, context uh, for listeners who grew up outside of Utah. I mean, I was, uh, hang on, let me get this microphone. We're going to tilt Thomas's right. microphone there we go. so you can hear him really well. How's that? That's great. Okay, I'll just try to really hug this thing. So, you know, cultural context, it's Wasatch Front culture, which, you know, everywhere you see the church, you see it in its local forms and varieties. Wasatch Front uh, culture at that time, it was even more concentrated. There was, there's more dilution now, uh, more people from other faith traditions and non-faith traditions. Um, but at that time, it was a very LDS neighborhood. And within that very LDS neighborhood, I grew up in a very LDS family. Uh, you know, my granddad's brother, uh, Bruce R. McConkie, was in the quorum. He passed away when I was five years old. And then the very next year, my mom's father, Joseph B. Worthen, was called into the quorum. So, I, I mean, I bring that up because I, I, you know, I got the sense that in that family, optics were important, like we were representing something. And uh, for me to suddenly not want to attend church, it, was, um, it wasn't just an internal family issue. It was that, but there was also concern about like, you know, what does this mean for the neighbors and the community? And I think really, as I say this out loud, any family feels that whether they have you know general mm. authorities in their family or not but i think the McConkies, the context yeah the mcconkeys that's a strong variety of mormonism <laughs> and so i grew up with that and maybe that was part of what contributed to my feeling like you know i just don't know if i can get with this program i don't know if this is working for me and um at first when i stopped going to church it and tell had, our listeners what age just so was, they got that. I was 13 years old. That's really unusual, Thomas. It was. Yeah, it was you're unusual. A, you're a deacon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was a deacon. I was young and um, didn't have any master plan of like what my life was going to look like 10 years from then. It was more like, I don't want to go to church this morning. <laughs> that's as far as I thought ahead. And it, just the way that conflict played out in my family, I felt so much pressure to be back at church the next Sunday. I think that just kind of um, caused me to dig my heels in even deeper. And it became a battle of wills. And it got to the point where it, you know, there was such a standoff. I just felt like I can't, under this pressure and duress, I can't go back to church on these terms. That's how it played out. There's a lot more to say about that, but, you know, in a way. I get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think um, yeah, we can all sense. understand that. Yeah, and I don't think it's a sign of weakness. It's just the reality of the situation, probably how you're wired. Yeah, I, absolutely. It was a temperamental thing. Um, yeah, it was an interesting time. And in hindsight, it's clear to me that, um, you know, I, I would have loved to find a way back. I would have loved to find a way to be in harmony with my family and community. And I think my parents were just looking out for me. They were scared of, you know, what could happen to me if I deviated too far. So that just ended up pushing me farther and farther away. And I made my way through high school. And, 
got out as soon as I could, got out of the house, got out of Salt Lake, got out of Utah. Um, my first time moving away, I was 18 when I moved to Orange County and just kind of started bouncing around the country from Orange County to New York. Um, I met my first friend, my like first authentic mainland China friend who was a dancer in New York at the time. And I just thought, hmm, New, uh, China, I'll go to China next. So I moved to China and, you know, that was really formative because in my late teen years, um, there was a dry spell from age 13 to about 18 where I wasn't really pursuing anything explicitly spiritual, but somehow like right out of high school, that hunger really manifested and I got really interested in the spiritual life again. Um, so I was reading, you know, Eastern texts and I was getting into a, a Buddhist meditation practice and China just felt like a natural place to make pilgrimage to. So moving there, I was, you know, I just turned 20 when I first moved abroad and stayed in China. And that was a really formative experience. I ended up spending four years in China and 21 years later, since I started a meditation practice, that's been a huge part of my spiritual life, just the practice of being still and knowing that God is God, as it's written in Proverbs. So there's that. I'll, I'll, you asked me about like the leaving and the coming. So I'll say that I like, but I love having the geography and the context. Yeah, I'm no, I'm doing of, my best to manage 12, you know, moving yeah. parts for you. What so, part of China were you in one spot or did you live those four years in different places? Uh, different places. I spent two of those four years in Shanghai. Um, and then in my twenties, when I was a college student in China, uh, it was more kind of central China, very, like very much the hinterlands. Um, very few foreigners where I lived. And that was how I wanted it. I wanted to just be lost in China. That's and I, great. I got good and lost there. Um, My wife and I went to China because our daughter is was living there in an immersion program. She ran the Beijing Marathon on yeah. the, or the Great Wall Marathon. Oh, wow. Which is just crazy. And so we just said as parents, we have to go see our daughter run this marathon. Yeah. And so we've spent five days in China in our life, Thomas. Um, you've spent four years. For some people, that's enough. And but it was just wonderful to be in Beijing and, yeah, and drive to the Great Wall Marathon. But yeah, keep sharing your story. It's a remarkable civilization. It, yeah. it, it has made a huge, it's left a huge imprint on me. Um, speaking of temperament, I was stubborn and willful from a young age, but I was also determined and dedicated. And that happened to gel really well with meditation practice for those who've you know, tried a formal meditation practice, it's quite difficult, especially in the beginning. Um, I teach meditation now for a living. We might talk about that later, to. but I've, you know, I've worked with thousands of students and I noticed that a huge percentage of them try it out and like wash out eventually because it's a difficult practice. It, it brings us face to face with often, you know, quite difficult emotional content in our lives. And for whatever reason, I had the constitution to just do it every day without missing. And that's what I was doing in New York City. And that's what I was doing in China. And I moved to Spain after I lived in China. And I moved to Quebec after I moved to Spain. And I lived all over the world. Did you become fluent in those languages, Thomas? 
Uh, I, in Chinese and Spanish, I became really proficient. In French, I wasn't there quite long enough to get that Quebecois down, but you know, was that <laughs> maybe part someday. Of the experience to learn the language. Did yeah, you love to learn language. It was relieving for me. I mean, in all truth, I left Utah. I left Mormon culture and the McConkie family, feeling quite wounded, quite devastated. That's so honest. <laughs> yeah, by the falling out we'd had. So there was something really emancipating about just getting dropped off in some foreign country and putting on a new identity. Because I would get to these foreign countries, and they would give me a new name, right? Zong Zhengzhe in China. Uh, Tomas in Spain, right? They'd, like just hearing a new name and speaking a new language, it felt like I could really distance myself from a lot of the pain I'd felt, which of course came around full circle. When I came back to my sister's wedding, I saw, oh no, all these skeletons in the closet. Wow. They demand that they be dealt with. But it was relieving. For, for many years, I was grateful to be abroad and be a student of foreign language and culture. And the common thread all those years was my meditation practice. I could just feel the spirit, I would say. Um, I might not have used that language at the time. I was so steeped in the Buddhist tradition, but I could just feel the action of the Holy Spirit in me, healing me and opening me up to you know future possibilities. Um, I just knew intuitively that that practice meant everything, and uh, it's hasn't let me down. So it's really interesting. I'll, I'll jump to like the last maybe um, scene from the story that's probably of interest. Um, along the way, I've had many teachers over the years from different traditions. Um, my former Zen teacher Sasaki Roshi. Uh, was stationed at Mount Baldy, which is in the San Gabriel Mountains, 40 miles east of L.A. or so, um, for 50 years. I met him towards the end of his life. I started practicing with him when he was, he was about 103 years old. Really? He was my meditation teacher's teacher, and my meditation teacher was a master in his own right, and he said, you should really study with my teacher. And I got to spend time with Sasaki Roshi for a couple of years, and... There was one particular retreat where I was with him at his, you know, his monastery. And I remember at the end of this, it was a seven day silent retreat. They're quite intense in Zen Buddhism, particularly like long hours, enduring heat and physical pain. And in my case, you know, some like malnourishment because I just couldn't get the meals down fast enough. You kind of take a beating up there. But on the last day, really the final hour of the final day, something just kind of I can't really put into words, clicked, shifted in me. And it, it was so subtle, I almost like didn't even see it. But it was coming down the mountain that night on my way to the airport. I just had this strange intuition like, I don't feel like my life's ever going to be the same. Just kind of came out of nowhere. And I heard that thought in my mind. I'm like, why did I just think that? You know, it was, all just, it was just a mystery to me. And um, a couple days later, I mean, this was, it was within that week, I get home. Sunday rolls around. Home being Salt Lake City for your yeah. sister's wedding at age whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I get, yeah, that's right. Because I'd come home for the wedding, but then I'd gone to a retreat at Mount Baldy. I was coming back to Salt Lake to gather up my things. And uh, what was it? A few days after that, Sunday rolls around. And without even a thought in my mind, I just suited up for church. Wow. It was the weirdest thing. Cause wow. It wasn't, I, it's, I can't, can't put it into words, but 
I didn't think like, huh, I think I'll go to church this week because that thought would have been so foreign to me because I hadn't been in 20 years. Sunday just came around and like I hadn't missed a Sunday in 20 years, I just threw on a shirt and a tie and walked down the street and went to church. And I was sitting. Is this your ward you grew up in, a different ward? Different. This okay. is like Salt Lake, Central Stake, 11th Ward, 2011 or 2012, something like that. Have you been back to Salt Lake much during this 20 years for any reason or? Like, would you come back once every five years, once every three years? Yeah, I would come back. Yeah, no, I'd come back for like a Christmas. I'd see, I wasn't completely, you know, off the map. Um, Okay. But this was different. This was really different. This was profoundly different. This changed my whole life. But I just remember sitting in the chapel that day. If you get a chance, if you're listening, there is a gorgeous, one-of-a-kind mural in this particular um, ward building on, you know, first South ninth East or so in Salt Lake city. But I just sat in there and just marveled at the spirit. I felt didn't matter what people were doing. It didn't matter what people were saying. There was a living, holy presence in that chapel. And it just filled my heart with something that felt like it had been missing for so long. It was just an overwhelming love and sense of fullness and joy. And I also had memories of how painful it was growing up in the church. So it, those coexisted. It was not a completely blissful moment so much as a highly paradoxical, ambiguous moment of how can it feel so beautiful and so full of spirit and touch on my deepest pain and trauma simultaneously. And I knew from sitting still for so many years, this is, I am forever grateful to my meditation teachers uh, for just teaching me this basic human skill of sitting still and letting things come and go. I knew intuitively that if I just sat still in that space, that over time, the spirit would heal those wounds that were so in need of a balm. And I, you know, I felt fear. I felt dread that, oh no, I, I need to come back here. <laughs> and that was the how many years of the pain. Yeah, exactly. The, the very heart of darkness for me. And yet I just, there was no, it was crystal clear that I needed to be here. And I have been ever since. And the healing has been profound and the spiritual gifts have been profound. And it's not lost on me that there seems to be a whole generation of Latter-day Saints working out the same experience that I had in their own way. The details of their stories look a little different than mine. But the basic dynamic, I think, of feeling the power of God's presence in their lives, as well as the contradictions, the pain, the wounding, I feel like my entire generation is working out these questions and looking for deeper integration and healing. And I'm invested in that community now. I, I care about it more than anything. I agree that, that that generation is looking for that. I know when I served in my YSA assignment, I knew I lacked all the tools I needed to fully meet their needs. And um, that's why I'm glad you're doing this podcast and all that you're doing and others to help us better understand. Did you know when you, I I love where you took us to that church on first, (laughs) south and ninth east. You articulated that so well. 
Um, and you also talked about um, the need to heal wounds. Mm. Did you know that before you sat in that church? In other words, did you feel fully healed through what you were doing um, with spiritual meditation or whatever? Did you feel you're okay or did you realize that coming to that Sully Church, yeah, I have more work to do. There's actually more pain down there that I haven't fully addressed. That's a really good question. I would say that I had been out of the church so long and really committed to my Buddhist practice. And I was a world traveler and I had forged deep friendships. And if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said, I feel really happy. You know, I, I feel... And I believe that. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was honestly what I felt like until I came back from my sister's wedding. And you know that feeling like we're, we all feel relatively saintly and enlightened until we go back for Thanksgiving dinner and that uncle or that sibling that we have trouble with it. But, you know, like our families, the people we care about the most, they tend to bring out our deepest vulnerabilities. And I'd been in Salt Lake 10 seconds when I realized like, oh, I've actually choreographed my entire life around not feeling what I'm feeling right now. That's I can so move honest. to China and take on a new name, pick up a new career have a new girlfriend, whatever. But the moment that all goes away and I'm back where it all started, it's like, oh, I don't feel happy here. I feel totally dysfunctional. Like I don't know how to live my life. And I just said, you know what? That's not okay. If I can't be free here, I can't be free anywhere. So I'm staying. I'm occupying myself in the state of Utah until this moves. And, and then the showing up at church shortly after that, which was, you know, a mystifying experience. It's like, oh, this is really where the heart of the pain is. Okay, all right, I'm going to just do everything I can to hang in here. I'm thinking of what you're sharing in many that um, have, I call church-generated pain. I don't know how to frame it up. It's just pain that originates from our culture, yeah. practice, people, and and that's real. And sometimes we don't sort of know how to validate yeah. that and heal that. And I love yeah. that you've got a bunch of this in your life. And and talk about how you got that out of your system, how you were healed from that. Well, uh, I'm or thinking— Or any other part of the story you want to share. I'm thinking of a funny story right now that I think is really relevant. Uh, my first contact with Zen Buddhism came when I was 18 years old. And this was, this was a Zen center in Salt Lake City, like I said earlier in the story, that I became interested in spirituality again after high school. My first contact in the you know, spiritual world was with the Zen Buddhists. And I talked to a senior there, someone who'd been there a really long time. And he said to me, a little wryly, but dead serious, you know, the only hard thing about Zen is the people. <laughs> like at the time, I'm like, huh? What a weird thing to say. But I look back on it now, and the way I interpret it in the moment is anywhere we go on this planet where human beings are worshiping and striving towards higher ideals, we're also going to see all of the dysfunction and all of the pathologies of our humanity. And I, I have a sense of humor about it now more than I did. I'm certainly not saying I, I make a point not to say to people, you know, especially these guests on this podcast, the, the audience that like, therefore you should hang in there like I did and stay at church. That's, I mean, people will have to make a really personal decision. Like, 
how they're going to stay, if they're going to go. All I can say that for me, it was really powerful to explore the profound dysfunction of Buddhist communities all over the world to recognize like, oh, this actually reminds me a lot of the dysfunction back home. And if I'm going to give my heart to a community, let me give it to this dysfunctional community. This is, the, this is the group I choose. And that was, uh, I, I didn't romanticize what another religion or spiritual culture might look like after that. I've seen so much across the spectrum that, you know, I tend to really appreciate the profound gifts of the LDS church. I try not to shy away from its real shortcomings in some ways and say, you know, we can do better. We must do better together. I, lo- I really like that. Um, I do th- this. We haven't talked LGBTQ, but we, mm. you know, we talk about that. And as you talked about your experience, there's a lot of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, as you know, that have just the same sort of general feeling. It comes from different sources, but they love the church, but they feel a lot of pain yeah. as an LGBTQ person at church. And in some ways, they would love to completely step away, but they they're they're so they feel what you felt at times on yeah. that church of on first and ninth. So it creates, I think, a word paradox or it cognitive dissonance or whatever. That's right. I feel that the LGBTQ uh, issue, tension, challenge is the defining challenge in our church right now. I mean, I don't mean to say that authoritatively. But more impressionistically, I can't think of a more profound turning point in our history or like opportunity to come together and like really practice Christian love. And my, my heart aches for what's going on right now. They're, you know, we're all facing um, difficult times with that, especially this community. Yeah. And I've heard you speak pretty empathetically to the difficulty of that road. And, and that's obviously what I'm trying to do in this podcast mm. is sort of talk about that road and yeah. so we can better understand how to minister and help and support. You do it beautifully. I admire your advocacy, Richard. Thanks, yeah. Thomas. Yeah. Talk about healing yourself because there's a lot of people that are hurting. I think everybody's hurting. Everybody. Um, so just, and maybe that's just part of you telling the rest of your story. You're, I'm, you know, you're sitting in this church and a shift has, has occurred. Yeah, yeah. And what well, do you do next? Yeah, well, where to start? I'll just try to be intuitive about it. The first thing that comes to me when you ask that question right now is that from my point of view, it's not only okay to say no, but it's imperative that we learn to say no to things that feel harmful to us. That might sound I don't know. I see you nodding. So it must be intuitive. I was going to say that might be counterintuitive. But what I mean by that is, I think one of the features of our culture is that we learn to serve the collective, we learn to serve others, and background ourselves in our own needs. And that is a profound spiritual practice, with its own gifts and its own fruits. The potential dark side to that is that when it's time to really take care of ourselves and define healthy boundaries and take steps back from relationships that aren't nourishing us, we don't always have the mature sensibilities 
you know, that a healthy adult would have and be able to say, you know what, I just have to say no to this. It doesn't feel like it would be healthy for me to say yes to that right now. I find that we really struggle with that as Latter-day Saints. So just getting really clear on our yeses and nos and trusting ourselves enough, our, our basic goodness that like we can say a no and it's not going to cause God to turn his back on us. And, you know, we're entitled to take care of ourselves. If we're not taking any, care, then we can't serve from a place of strength. Any examples just to illustrate that for our listeners? Well, when I was 13 years old, <laughs> I mean, Good. you know, like that was my first like full body no. And I'm not saying, you know, the no's that followed are necessarily the path for everybody. That's a whole other conversation. But that was a really powerful moment for me. I, I knew I wasn't comfortable at church. And so I said no. And although that caused heartache in my family and that heartache took time to work out and heal, one of the profound gifts that it conferred to me in my spiritual life was an increasing trust in my own like ability to be guided by the Spirit and to know like when something is right for me. And I, that has served me in good stead. So It's very helpful. Um, I want to make sure we get to a couple things. One is just sort of how you returned then. You've got this experience where um, you're feeling a spirit here that's very unique, and you've had this world perspective of all these different religions and all this good, and now you're here feeling something unique and different, hmm. and sort of then how that brings you back into the church. And then, so I'd love you to tell a little bit about just sort of returning to the church, however you define that. And maybe that just happened that day, the very first day. You just said, this is my home, I'm back. And yeah. it wasn't a formal process as much as just... And then I'd love to have you talk about why you wrote about it. I, I assume oh, yeah. your experience yeah. led to the book, Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis, and just writing about your experience to help well, others. Yeah, well, let me start with that, because that okay. was actually a really significant moment in my life. Um, one of my meditation teachers... Um, I was in my mid twenties at the time. And he said, Hey, there's this book I think you should read. And I pick up the book. And one of the key themes in the book is adult development. I'd never heard of it. I knew nothing about it. I read the book. And <laughs> to this day, I laugh at my response. When I was reading the book, mind you, I'm 25, 26. I haven't, I'm, I'm quite distant from the Mormon church at this point. It's just not so much on my radar. I read this book, and as I'm seeing these stages and patterns of adult development, out of nowhere, this thought comes to my mind, I can be Mormon again. <laughs> I don't mean to, you know, I know we're all trying to wean off the word Mormon, so you got to give me a grace period here, people. We'll but, give you a grace but, period. But that was the thought I had, I can be Mormon again, when I read about adult development. And the reason I thought that is I was looking at these patterns of how uh, the adult mind matures, how adult emotions and spirituality and worldviews mature. And I was seeing these patterns and thinking, some of these feel like dimly familiar to me. And they're not necessarily like mainstream LDS culture, but nevertheless, this literature and research seems to be saying that there's something healthy about this ongoing growth and progression of a human being. So instantaneously, I imagined, what if I could be back in the church, but it looked a little more like this, and not like what it looked like when I was five years old, 
or 10 years old. And, you know, now I'm 39 years old in the church, and I sincerely hope that my form of worship and practice and faith will look very different in 10 years than it looks now. So this whole uh, discipline of adult development, it just filled me with wonder instantly. And I became a student of it. And I do research in it now and I teach adult development. And it's a big part of, you know, like the teaching and training I do in our, you know, local community. Um, At one point out of nowhere, I just kind of wrote a book. I didn't, said I didn't intend to write a book it just kind of happened but I did it with that joy that sense of joy that you know what if this is I just pray that this book can convey that same energy to people again I want to be careful here I I think it's really important and if I belabor this point and you want to push back please do but I think it's really important to say when I offer this book and I offer this message in no way I'm suggesting oh you can like chart your personal development and come back to church. I mean, you know better than most people how tender this territory is and how complex it is when people choose to leave and to stay. So I'm not talking about leaving or staying so much as like really embracing the best of the spiritual gifts that this church and tradition offer. That's what I mean. And I wrote that book with the sense of, I pray that this will make possible what it made possible for me. And even then, like when I came across adult development, I mean, it took me several more years. Like I felt so much wounding and damage from the church. I, it took me years, even from that insight to get myself back in the door. But there's Did that. You, how long after being in that church with your sister's wedding until you wrote the book? That's a really good question. It was probably three years so it's and that's roughly three years ago ish yeah that's about let's see 2015 almost four Four years yeah but there was an incubation period for sure i mean i you know didn't know a whole lot about the church i still don't but at that time i mean i i knew far more about the eastern traditions than i knew about christianity let alone uh the latter-day saint church so when I read your book i loved your history with other religions for some reason um (laughs) your experience outside the church and the growth that occurred in your life out the church and the ability to see good in other religions mm. as you brought that into this book about adult, I think I, adult stages of development. Mm-hmm. Is that the right term? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was very helpful to me. And I, and when you said something about, you, you know, your own thought of reading that book and saying this, you know, there may be a way for me to be back in the church or this yeah. is maybe, it certainly was that way for me because I thought I realized that this may just be part of of my development in life, and yeah. so I suddenly started to frame what I was calling a mini faith crisis, not a step backwards. Right. I knew the narrative didn't apply because one of the blessings of my experience is I was serving um, so extensively in the church and reading and praying and helping so many people and. Even during this time, I baptized three people into the church during this time of like yeah. a couple dominoes falling. So the dissonance was kind of high, but yeah. your book helped me to sort of see that this may not be a step backwards and it may not because I've done anything wrong. Some of the simple narrative that I had heard about people that got my, that had landed where I found myself. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the reasons your book was very helpful for me. Any more thoughts on that? 
Well, I, thank you. I mean, that's the best thing I can hear. I hope the book is helpful to people in, in different ways. Um, what else would I say about it? Um, nothing's coming to mind that's at okay. the moment. There, there's, there's so much about it. Um, not every faith crisis is by definition healthy. I think that's what I've learned about adult development. Um, to me, this comes from, you, you hear this cliche, uh, crisis is an opportunity in, in Mandarin Chinese, Weiji, uh, crisis is a dangerous opportunity, right? So it can go either way, but I'm hopeful about, you know, faith crisis because it means there's a breaking open and it means things are kind of reforming, recasting themselves. And if we're faithful and if we're diligent and wholehearted about the challenges we're experiencing, I find that more often than not, we land in a more loving, a more spacious, a more grace-filled place. And I think development, you know, we can overstate how helpful development is, and that's a whole other danger. But I feel like a d development at its best can illuminate the territory a little bit and help us see our higher future self embryonically in the making. And aren't we all embryos of God's? Won't we always be in the making? So any insight we can get into what we're becoming and to live into those ideals, my sense is that's a good thing. It's a great thing. That is our doctrine. And so using um, that as a, as a path to, you know, live our doctrine and grow and progress is great. I've felt a lot of wounding during the mini faith crisis. I mean, that was a very wounding time for me emotionally, mm. spiritually. Um, and so one of the challenges was sort of get over that wounding. And you talk, just talk about, you kind of come back to wounding a little bit as you're coming back. How do you, how did you heal yourself? Cause there's so many wounded people out there. And, right. and so just thoughts on if I'm a, if there's wounded listeners listening from different, it's it's such a broad topic. I don't know how you address that, but yeah. maybe just church generated wounding. <laughs> right. Well, to get into that, I, I really appreciate this topic. I wonder if you'd say a little bit more about what was the nature of the wounding you were experiencing at that time. I think it ha it started for me with um, LGBTQ. Um, and just for the first time, listening to a couple of gay men in my ward, and it was the first time I really listened and really recognized the difficulty of their situation. And I have kind of said on this podcast, I realized that I'd let straight people my whole life tell me about LGBTQ people. And mm. I just felt an impression from God to say, you know, you ought to let LGBTQ people, you know, they're my children. You need to learn from them. And, yeah. and then I realized kind of the difficult road they had and how our church could add to their burden and not fully be the Zion people or the body of Christ yeah. that we, we should become. And so I recognized just maybe for the first time gaps yeah. um, in our church, mm -hmm. um, probably not doctrinal gaps because mm -hmm. um, our doctrine would be all alike unto God yeah. and God loves each of his children equally and they're all worthy of God's love. Yeah. So, that doctrine didn't really match the practice I was seeing yeah. at the local level. And some of the things our leaders would say that would add to the burden. Yeah. So once I kind of opened that door, Thomas, I and I was willing to sort of really go there, 
and be willing to understand the complexity of that. That was, and the policy statements happened during this time. And I was unsettled about those and reached out to a couple trusted church leaders and felt pretty dismissed um, with some of my concerns. And Mm -hmm. maybe for the first time in my life, even though I was giving kind of everything I could for the cause, was feeling some concern about me um, being, you know, the terrors are not, you know, the deceived will be the, what is that line? The strong will be deceived in the last days. And so that's kind of (laughs) the narrative. That's kind of what happened to me on this, during this one year of a YSA assignment. Yeah. And and I really appreciate you sharing what you did in the way you did, because that's a pattern of wounding that I see across the board, namely um, a member, a, a righteous member, a worthy member, uh, has an issue with a particular doctrine or something going on in the church, and they bring it forward, and they're met with a sense of, well, why would you ask that question? And suddenly, that vulnerability, that tenderness, that quality of, I don't know what to do here, can someone help me? It's almost used against you. Exactly. Right. And so I, I see. I wish I could have talked to you Thomas, <laughs> during this time. And maybe Hope, that's what hopefully you're. Hopefully I would have been helpful. And in some ways you did because I read your book. Well, so I, there I, you go. I appreciate that. Um, of course we don't mean to do this. And I, I agree with you. Absolutely. I, I think of imperfectly implemented doctrine. I, I'm not so worried about the doctrine, although it's not as though we have perfect doctrine. We have, it's you okay, know, right? But I, we're imperfectly implementing these high ideals and, you know, commands from on high. And as we do that, we do a very natural human thing, which is we hide our vulnerability and we make like everything's real smooth and we're with the program and like just hold the course. I'm thinking of a young man in my the ward I recently moved into a couple of years ago. We were in Elders Quorum. <laughs> I just will not forget this because it was so unusual and so beautiful. It tore, this is a guy, his eyes were bloodshot. He's got like fresh ink on his arms. Come out of the fresh tattoo. ink. Fresh, fresh <laughs> tattoo within the last, it looked like three days, you know, that tender look of a tattoo, bloodshot eyes, wearing like dressed down a little bit, not like super dressed up, but dressy enough for church. And at the end of class, we have five minutes left and he just raises his hand. He says, you got to give me something that I can walk out that door with because I'm barely hanging on. He said, I, I worked a graveyard shift tonight. I need spiritual food to walk out that door because I don't know if I can make it back next week. And I was just overcome with this admiration and love for this person, the courage. How often do you hear a comment like that at church? Maybe not often enough, I would suggest. And, you know, I just had an insight of like how powerful it is when we reveal our struggles to each other in communion, in worship, and the pernicious effects of hiding our struggles from each other. So that might be one of the first things we look at as we're building Zion and building the kingdom of heaven on earth. How kind are we to the whole human being, not just the high-performing, pleasing metrics, does all their missionary work, ministering, 
et cetera, et cetera. Not just like that side of the street, but when we're like really struggling and we don't know what we used to know to be true and we're barely hanging on, hanging on by our fingernails, like how do we show up for each other then? I feel like that's really the future of our communities to like really hold each other more deeply that way. I love that, Thomas. And I've certainly yearned for that at times in my own ward. Now that I'm back in my resident ward is just sort of authentic, vulnerable conversations where we come together. And our own elders quorum has done that at times. It's been very healing as people have opened up. And I just think we need that to create authentic connection. I didn't understand that until I sort of went in this space myself and recognize that I needed those kind of conversations from trusted sources. I knew I could have yeah. them with people outside of the church, but I didn't really want, I wanted to turn to my church family to be able right. to talk about right. how I felt in a safe way. <clears throat> and the way, so I talk about development from an individual perspective, faith development, but we can also talk about the development of our collective, the development of our church as a whole. And I think developmentally, one of our leading edges is to learn to make room for emotional rawness and vulnerability and learn how to hold it in a mature way together. Because like where we are developmentally now, as I see it, not always, but often it's like, oh, you should have that conversation behind closed doors. If you share that doubt, that doubt might spread. But, but that very, we've all heard language like that. That metaphorical language is to equate our vulnerability, doubt, and struggle with a virus, right? And we don't mean to do that. I, I think we have good it's hearts. I believe in the saints. But like, if we look at that and treat, you know, that doubt as like, oh, this is a wound that we need to send blood and nutrition and life force to, to support. That's a different metaphor. And we would rally around each other in a different way if we conceptualized it that way, you know? I love that. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking I'm still back in your elders quorum now with this guy opening up and uh, that yeah. really, and you, I would felt some tears in my eyes as you told that story. And I would just love to give that man a hug, but yeah. <laughs> you know, let's say there's people on the podcast that are, you know, symbolically in the same spot that are listening to us and sort of saying, Thomas, and you've probably already done this in the podcast, give me something. Yeah, give you something. <laughs> give me something to just help me. Give, and let's say they just need to get to the next week or they just need to find a way to stay. Or um, let, Talk to those that really want to stay, yeah. um, but just don't think they can make it another week. And I know you don't want to be prescriptive and give a formula and say, yeah. this is how you stay, because that's yeah. not really your style. But yeah, you go anywhere you want with that question. Okay. That's easier to answer. When you tell me I can go anywhere I want to go. Go anywhere. I, we trust you. <laughs> my, my feeling about human beings, my feeling about God's children, is that at a very deep level, we are trustworthy it doesn't mean we don't screw up. It doesn't mean we don't deviate from, you know, the elect path and have to kind of realign ourselves. But when we really start to relate ourselves, relate to ourselves as being fundamentally trustworthy, I find it really lightens the journey. So what that means, like for people listening, wherever you are on the spectrum of I'm at church, I'm engaged, believing, love it. I'm at church, a mm, little bored, mm, kind of have questions coming and so forth. Where especially as, you know, you're getting to the end of the spectrum of like, I'm just barely hanging on. 
to relate to yourself as deeply trustworthy. Like, okay, you're barely hanging on. Well, then something in your spirit and your soul must be telling you that there's something that needs to be attended to. So it doesn't mean you're a problematic person. And it doesn't mean your faith and your goodness and the light of Christ in you are dying on the vine. It means, okay, you're barely hanging on. And what does it feel like to really trust that impulse and look even more deeply at it and investigate it? That's a powerful move because what I find is when we don't treat ourselves as trustworthy, those feelings come up and we feel like problematic people. And we go into like, I'm going to hide this from the community or I'm just going to hide myself from the community. And we, or I'm going to hide that from my own self. Yeah, exactly. We, we choreograph our lives around avoiding these like sources of pain. And what I learned in my own story that I shared earlier is that really my greatest spiritual breakthrough in my whole life was just feeling a willingness to go deeper into the pain and, and, and trust myself and trust God and trust the goodness of life that if I go into the very heart of this pain, even if and when it blasts me to smithereens, that something deeper and truer will rise out of that rubble. I, I have so much faith in people's spiritual intelligence and their compasses. I hope to see more of that in our communities as we, as we grow up together. I'm really touched by that answer, and I it actually answers the next question I was going to ask you. Yes, Maybe twofer. You give, got a twofer. Yeah, you got a twofer there, Thomas, <laughs> but it was sort of like if you were a local leader and you were talking to somebody who's kind of barely hanging on, huh. um, that answer you just gave to me, I mean, I think of the YSAs I'd counsel on what you just said. I don't think I said that quite as eloquently, but I think at times I went down the same road. Hmm. and. And I think it's our doctrine to to sort of empower us, and and we are literally children of heavenly parents and right. divine nature, and so that sure fits with our doctrine. And right. and by that, we're worthy to trust ourselves. Right. And we have the light of Christ. We have the Holy Ghost if we're a baptized member. And yes. And so, to me, that really resonates. And instead of maybe looking for a local leader for all the answers and all the I gave less answers the longer I served, like this is your path and more tried to do what you just taught is teach principles and, and really empower people and give them faith in themselves to make really good answer and decisions. That, that, I'm glad you bring that up. I mean, that um, oft quoted phrase from Joseph Smith, yeah. someone from like the local bulletin, local newspaper saying, how do you do this? How do you build a kingdom like Nauvoo? Well, I teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. To me. Uh, and trust them. And yes. really trust them. I think I try to yes. do that as a parent. Yeah, exactly. Um, what a beautiful doctrine that we're like 180 years later, we're still growing into. We're just barely beginning to understand what that would look like as a community. And, you know, my sense is right on time. You know, let's keep going. Let's, what would it look like to really trust ourselves and to govern ourselves? I think we're living into that answer as Latter-day Saints. Um, talk about faith before we went live. That was one of the, yeah. And I'd love you to talk about what you're doing with your nonprofit lower lights. So sure. I don't know if those are, if you want to tie those together, deal with those I'll, one and then you, the other. You asking me to try for another twofer here. <laughs> faith. Well, you tied in geography you... <laughs> with your faith journey right, those right. 20 years. Let's see what I can do. <laughs> um, 
So I find it helpful. I work with a lot of people one-on-one. I work with couples. I work with groups of people and collectives and communities and institutions. And this is your profession. This is what you do I do full this full-time. And I, I find that it's helpful to make a distinction when we're talking about faith. Uh, one kind of faith I call a kind of propositional faith, a creedal faith, meaning like I believe these things to be true. That is a helpful and necessary and useful form of faith. I don't know anybody who doesn't exercise this kind of faith as a human being. You know, even let's take the uh, the atheists who sometimes, you know, Latter-day Saints pick on. They have to make a leap of faith and say, well, given all the evidence, given everything I see, feel, hear, smell, touch, I believe that God doesn't exist. It's a leap of faith. They can't prove it, but that's the proposition there. Anyway, enough said about propositional faith. Propositional faith involves what we believe in. I believe Jesus Christ was the you know, only begotten Son of God. He atoned for our sins. I believe through faith, baptism, repentance, the laying on of hands, etc., that you know, we can become members of Christ's church and be saved. The other kind of faith that I feel is crucial, especially as we get into the more messy and ambiguous and nuanced territory of adulthood is a kind of like attitudinal faith or rather just the quality of living with an attitude of faith, not a specific belief about any one truth claim or proposition, but faith as an attitude. Again, we've touched on this in my own basic goodness. If, hey, it's been revealed that we are made of the very stuff of God, right? The light that is in, all, in and through all things, we are that intelligence and light that is co-eternal with God, the Father, and the Mother themselves. If that's true, well, I should be able to trust myself somewhat, right? Not only trust myself, but trust the basic goodness of life and trust the basic reliability of God's plan for us to evolve and develop. So that's a kind of faith. It's just an attitude. It doesn't take the form of a particular belief. It's just how we wake up in the morning and stand up and get dressed and face the day and say, you know what? I believe this day is profoundly worth living. The reason I bring this up and make this distinction is because a lot of people, when they come to me and say they've had some experience with faith crisis, it's because it's almost always because something about their truth claims, the the propositional side of faith that was upset. I thought this, now I don't know if I think this anymore. And that creates all sorts of unrest and struggle and uncertainty and confusion, which brings up a lot of discomfort in the body. And we feel like we're just off kilter. However, it's exactly when those propositional um, truth claims are kind of melted down broken, recast into something new, that a deeper kind of faith can emerge, right? So to me, it's a more mature kind of faith. Um, I think of St. John of the Cross, who wrote centuries ago, he was a Spanish monk, mystic. And St. John wrote, pure faith is a ray of darkness to the soul. 
And that's almost exactly the opposite of what our minds would think faith is. Faith is like knowing. Faith is, yeah. you know, hoping for things not seen. St. Saint, uh, John said it was just the opposite. It's darkness. It's, it's having such deep trust in self and God that you can be stripped of knowing anything, but you still trust the ground beneath you and are still willing to keep living your life. So that's a little bit about that. That's great. Um, I find it powerful. Let me, let me say that more succinctly. Exactly when we feel like we're broken, exactly when we feel like we've lost faith, that's often faith revealing a new face to us, a new depth to us. And that's cool. I love it. I feel like to me that has been the essence of spiritual life and growth, and it's brought me incredible joy but I'm certainly sympathetic to the panic that comes up in all of us when we feel like we're stripped of everything. All of our secure reference points are gone. There's an art to learning how to just be in free fall. There's an art in learning how to just be in the dark, groping, but groping with the sense of confidence, a godly, a godly confidence that, okay, I'll grope for eternity because I know I'm found. I, I know God won't abandon me. So it's powerful. It's an opportunity. And I, I hope people really see that for as broken as we can feel, as lost as we can feel, what's truly good and what is true faith, my experience is never lost. So I, I hope we live into that together. And Lower Lights is an expression of that. I mean, we have a community of practice here. It's based in Salt Lake City, but we do events all over the place. Um, there are community gatherings and workshops and retreats and trainings. And we have a podcast, Mindfulness Plus. You can plug that or put up a link. But Mindfulness, mindful plus. Mindfulness Plus. Mindfulness and Plus. And the, uh, the spirit of it is to really create spaces where we can grow vibrantly together, to really just continue to make progress along whichever path we feel is aligned with our integrity and our values. And that will change all the time. It's a moving target for all of us. We have people in the LDS tradition. We, pe we have many people who've left the LDS faith, but still crave growth and they crave goodness and they crave spirit, even though a lot of them wouldn't call it spirit. We call it different things. We have people, you know, who are not members of the LDS church but nevertheless really appreciate just being in a growthful environment together. So we've been doing that for a long time. I started doing that right around ago. I mean, it was uh, about seven years ago we started meeting, but it wasn't until about three years ago that we realized that this was actually a broad need in the community and we should hang up a shingle and rent a bigger space and incorporate and, you know, make the resource available to more people. So we've been working as a nonprofit organization for the last three years. How do people years. find you? Lowerlightswisdom.org. So Lower Lights, you know, if you're listening, you might have heard a little jingle, let the lower lights be burning. It's <laughs> lowerlightswisdom.org. And we have, you know, lots of resources up there. And, you know, we hope you'll come say hi. I have not been to any of your events, but I've been to a number of events where people have been healed. It's probably one of the words I describe. I heard secondhand of a man who had left the church and was really, really angry. And I recognize that there's a lot of anger <laughs> um, 
And through whatever he experienced there, Thomas, it it was the it healed him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I never I didn't hear that story firsthand, and I don't expect you to know specifically <laughs> that story. But I was just glad that anybody that is wounded and feels pain, and I think anger is a secondary emotion through yeah. feeling wounded and pain. That that this good man found peace through what what you taught and what you brought there. So I thought that was great. Well, thank you, Richard. It's it's a remarkable community, and it's a collectively held intention to bring healing to each other and to invite the spirit to heal us. So I, I wish I could take credit for the magic that happens there, but I, I've I've been healed there myself, and I've seen some beautiful things. So were you in the... So you here you are in this church. I'm going back to First South and Ninth East. If I yes. still got the coordinates, nine forty five East, if I remember. <laughs> Good, correctly. everybody 940, go nine forty. You'll find it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> you just have—I don't know what to call it—a pivot or a turn—and just know that somehow you're going. Did you feel like you were going to stay here in Salt Lake? And um, what I'm really asking is, how long until lower lights? And I'm going to actually be a part of this church, this church community, and and serve in this unique way. It all happened right around the same time. So what was remarkable about that experience with my former teacher who passed away, um, you know, I was coming down the mountain that night feeling like something, you know, I feel funny, right? And within, you know, I I went to church days after that. Um, Sometime right around that same time, a friend of mine who I'd known for many years, he just said, you know, will you share your meditation practice with me. It was the first time anyone had like really um, asked me to formally, you know, instruct them. And we just started meeting at my place, you know, close to the university. And, you know, the, we're at the end of the night, he said, you know, that was really fun. Can we do this again next week? And he brings his son and his son brings a friend. And before long, it was just a packed house. And, you know, we were working together and just seeing and being seen and something about that clicked. Do you have any feelings for what you're going to be doing in the future, Thomas? Well, right now, I mean, at Lower Lights, we just launched a major program with a kind of novel curriculum to it. Uh, it involves adult development, which I've we've shared in this program that has been a very powerful transformative tool for me. It involves training the mind in meditation, contemplation, prayer, and it involves psychological healing or sometimes called shadow work in the industry. So it's this kind of three-part curriculum and it all orients around the traditions that provide us with ultimate meaning. So we have, you know, someone uh, from the Hindu tradition born in India We have an atheist agnostic in the program. We have many Latter-day Saints across the spectrum. I'm just experimenting with this new curriculum. I'm curious about, you know, I take divinization and this doctrine uh, in our theology really seriously. It captivates my imagination. So I ask these questions, what do we have to do as human beings to heal and grow and develop and wake up? in order to really make the most of this time in this particular estate, you know, before we, you know, move on to the next thing. And this curriculum, this program called Spectra, it's a nine month program. It's a very deep dive of a committed group who said like, we're here for nine months and we're going for it. 
that's that's what we're working with right now. And I hope as we, you know, move different groups of people through the program that we get insights into what would a collective, even a church-wide healing and renaissance and awakening look like? So those are questions I'm asking, and we're doing research on the program, and I think I'll write about it eventually, but I hope more people join and um, I do take part in the experiment. So that's what's up, and that, you know, I think exciting things are to come. Before we went live, you talked a little bit about your role at BYU. Oh, yeah. To just help teachers tell, because I think that's helpful, the things that you're helping teachers at BYU that may apply to all of us. Well, I'm grateful to, you know, my friend Jane Birch. She works at the Faculty Center at BYU, which oversees all training for all faculty. It's huge. I think it's over 1,500 teachers there. I don't know how many of them are tenured um, or, you know, like permanent employees. Uh, but Jane came to a Lower Lights gathering I, over two years ago and came up to me after and she just said, this learning is so exciting. Would you be willing to do this at BYU? And, you know, I thought, you think this is going to fly at BYU? Okay, let's try it out. And we try, and Jane has been masterful at like just making that possible there. And I have made so many close friends among the professors there. And we've been engaged in this, you know, it's a kind of new style of learning. It's less conceptual, although still conceptual, but primarily experiential. Like it's a, it's a meditative, contemplative practice. It's a developmental practice and it involves um, getting into situations that require us to be very present and notice how we're responding and starting to observe the patterns of our personalities at play and notice where we're wounded and notice where we're shrinking away from something in life. It's hard to say all at once, but the program at BYU has been really successful. And, you know, I hope to plant some seeds at contemplation with Jane and other colleagues and the beautiful professors at BYU who are embodying the practice and living it virtuously. I just have always sensed that Meditation as a tool is so innate to Christianity and will be to the restored gospel. And, you know, my hope is that we make more use of this tool as the restoration continues. Why? Why? I mean, I kind of know the answer, but I do agree. It's something that maybe culturally hasn't been something we've really embraced. Um, And I sense, just talk about that. I'll say that... It's an anomaly in Christian history. For the first uh, 16 or so centuries of Christian history, contemplation, meditation um, was cast in a favorable light. And it wasn't until the last few centuries where there was more of a kind of skeptical distance from that aspect of, you know, a Christian life. So, you know, it, it seems normal if you were born any time in the last 400 years, which everyone listening was... It seems like meditation. We that, have the three Nephites listening. Okay, yeah. If we do, <laughs> I didn't mean to offend or exclude any <laughs> listeners. But, you know, for the rest of us, you know, when someone brings up meditation, it's like, well, why Why would you bring that up? So first I would appeal to Christian history, which it, it seems to be at the very foundations of the tradition. And I think there's a lot of scholarship and history to support that claim. But let's get way more practical in this information age where we are bombarded by media and flickering screens and just living at a frenetic pace, 
The experience of most adults, most days, most of the time, most of their lives is just being caught up in their head, busy, their to-do lists getting longer and longer, check one thing off, add five things. The, the, busier, the more we do, the busier we are. And contemplation is a very, very practical tool for taking a 90-degree turn downward. Think of a very choppy, stormy ocean and just being tossed about on the waves there. And then think about the capacity. Let's, let's say you can breathe underwater. It's really nice and warm down there. You take a 90-degree turn straight down and just plummet to the depths. There's lightning crashing. There's like storms howling, 50-foot swells on the surface. You go 10 feet down, it's like, oh, this is way more mellow than it was at the surface. You go 100 feet down, it's starting to get a little darker, quieter. You're just feeling like, you know, gently washed back and forward, but nothing like the surface. You go 10,000 feet down, and it's pure stillness, and it's pure peace, and it's restorative to the soul. And if we can reliably go to that depth in our daily life throughout the day, we start to radiate that stillness and that peace and that spiritual depth throughout the world. It's, it's not just the gift of the spirit that we get to benefit from, but we get to offer that gift to others and we get to live you know, a spirited, meaning-filled life. So I feel that there's a reason that you know, there's a mindfulness revolution afoot. Everybody, you know, schools, uh, politicians, uh, uh, Apple and Facebook and Google, they've all got their mindfulness programs. The reason, one of the reasons I think this practice is really taking hold is because we've never needed stillness and contemplation so desperately as we do in this moment. So that's, you know, I, I would say that I'm a meditation teacher. It's my hard sell, but I recommend it. <laughs> I'm 58 and I've just never had any experience in this space. You're the yeah. first person I've really talked to about mindfulness. Our yeah. children are much more aware, much more aware yeah. of this space and the importance for this space. So I'm learning, and it's really interesting what you said about it's needed now more than ever, given yeah. how noisy. Yeah. I love the visual of going underwater. I'm thinking of a <laughs> little bit of snorkeling and scuba diving and how quickly that changes. But yeah. I'm also, you know, I added up all the bishops interviews I did as maybe two, 3,000. I thought my brother said, he said, most of the good you're going to do is going to be in those one-on-one -on -one interviews. And now mm -hmm. I'm hearing some of the things you're sharing. Yeah. And I wish I'd heard this before I was called. Uh, because I probably would have approached those interviews a little bit differently. Yeah. And I probably would have maybe instead of just be the problem solver and the toolkit and mm -hmm. set answers, I think I would have shifted a little bit back to the person I'm meeting with and try to teach them mindfulness skills yeah. and well, spiritual skills to kind of develop a better long-term foundation for their lives and not necessarily be relying on a on others for just every direction in their life. Yeah. Just no, some I, thoughts on that is yeah. I'm going back to my one-on-one -on -one interviews as you're talking, especially as you talked about what you're trying to teach the BYU professors. I thought that would be, that's very helpful for me. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, there's good news here. And that is from my perspective, yes, I was, you know, classically trained and formed in Buddhist meditation and you know, there is something about just still sitting and, you know, not moving a muscle for five minutes or 
five hours. There's, there's something about that particular practice, but I will say as I've been, you know, back in the LDS church and culture for several years, I'm amazed at the meditative practice of opening one's heart to the Holy spirit and asking for guidance to me. There's no more profound meditation or intention than that. So it's not as though Latter-day Saints are unfamiliar with, when I say meditation or mindfulness, that can create the impression like, oh, I've never done that. Certainly Latter-day Saints have deep familiarity with it. And because this is an aspect of our tradition that has been lost, as many things are lost in what we call the great apostasy, it stands to reason that like there are some helpful approaches to prayer and contemplation that maybe we're not as keen on as we were 2000 years ago. Does that make sense? So, make sense? so we're doing fine and there's still a lot of room for improvement, but I, you know, I'm amazed when I look at the meditation practices of the world traditions, just the intention to be guided by the spirit is profoundly moving to me. And I learned that, you know, I might've left church when I was 13, but my parents sure shot taught me like what the Holy ghost feels like and how to ask the Holy ghost for help in moments. So I, I think, uh, I think we're well equipped to, you know, continue the restoration efforts. And I think part of our doctrine is very much that we own our own relationship with heavenly parents. We don't necessarily need to work through anybody on earth to have a personal relationship. And I would think that fits with, if you believe that doctrine, then it leads to mindfulness to be able to be in a spot to understand what our heavenly parents are wanting us to do and to get personal revelation in our lives. Yeah, indeed. If, if anything, um, this is something, if you study Christian history and contemplative history in Christianity, you know, you'll see the distinction between what's classically called discursive prayer which we're used to is just discursive means we're talking. We say a prayer and we say some words and do some listening, but then we talk. And then the prayer of quiet. And to me, I love this, you know, language of Lehi and the opposition and all things. If we have discursive prayer, that's good. But discursive prayer without quiet could just be mindless chatter. Quiet without discursive prayer could just be spacey, you know, out in the dark, unfocused unintentional, you know, uh, what's, uh, what else do I call it? You get what I'm saying. So these, my experiences, like these opposites really energize one another. If we can learn to be deeply quiet, that will energize and deepen the meaningfulness of our, our prayers, our conversations, our encounters with God. I find that just learning a little bit of quiet, learning how to deeply listen uh, is a powerful prayer practice that, you know, hopefully we'll, you know, continue to restore <laughs> together. Are there unique doctrines that make our church different from other Christian churches that are sort of foundational for you being a member? Um, do you, or is that too, is that sort of per, prop, propositional faith? I mean, any thoughts on in, on that? I mean, you know, where to start with, you know, where... Our church has, you know, taken sharp 90 degree turns from mainline Christianity. For me, I mean, what's moving right now, what's really moving to me, because I'm, I'm very much a young student of the LDS church. You know, I missed my formation. I feel much more confident as a Buddhist in some ways, but I'm loving my, 
you know, my formation in this church, um, I'm really moved by communal salvation. That we, no one's saved alone. We're sealed to each other. We're bound to each other. And to me, it's very uh, evocative of Paul's metaphor, not just a metaphor, I think something literal of a body of Christ that, you know, we can't be whole, we can't be complete without all of us. So to me, what's so profound about this isn't just doctrine, this is culture, this is LDS culture in the best of ways that we work collectively, we rise and fall collectively, we say we're saved by and through one another. And there, there's something that's so profound to me about that. It just rings so deeply true with my spiritual intuitions. So I'm in love with that. Communal salvation. I love that. <laughs> well, I didn't put words to a doctrine <laughs> that I've never thought of that way, but it's, it's very helpful. Oh, cool. Well, hey, sometimes the new guy gets lucky with a turn of phrase. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, think of, I think of one of the talks I've liked from Elder Oakdorf where he talks about an impressionistic painting and sometimes... Um, it sounds like you're familiar with that talk that, you know, it's hard to see all these individual dots, but uh, over time and looking in the rearview mirror and maybe even through mindfulness, you'd be able to yeah. understand um, the clear picture. Do you ever look back at your life, Thomas, and, and, and sort of say, well, this has probably been my plan um, to have all these different <laughs> experiences you've had to be able to now help people the way you're helping? Yeah. Um, do you look at it that way and sort of say, you know, I didn't go off track. It wasn't like yeah. I lost 20 years of my life and yeah. now I'm back on the plan that this is really my plan and what I was always meant to do. And yeah. now I'm in a space to be able to help people in my community in a way I wouldn't have been able to if I hadn't experienced all this stuff. I, I do see it that way. I, to the extent that my life experiences are helpful to others, I'm thrilled. And what you bring up for me right now is a theme that has come to mean a great deal to me. And it's helped me as I try to cultivate more charity in my life, which is I've noticed that the anxiety we feel for one another within the church and outside of the church, anxiety meaning like that person's off track, that person's behind schedule. What all these ideas we you have did about get your eagle scout, right? Oh well, man, until a day before you know, and, you know. And I grew up in a place where they say, you know, you're not really a serious candidate for a job unless you have an eagle scout, right? All that stuff. But you know, what I've come to appreciate is our anxiety is profoundly human. In the moments I've been gifted with spiritual sight to see people for a moment through God's eyes or as much as I could handle that, you know, stare, if you know what I'm saying, like we get these glimpses, have these spiritual experiences. It's really clear to me that God looks at our spiritual growth across the eons he doesn't seem to be anxious about like, oh, that kid, I mean, he should have, Thomas is 36. He should have been married at 29 latest. We get anxious about that. But when God is looking at us over the eons and saying, you know what? I can already see who this person's going to be in 10,000 years and it's quite gorgeous and I'm well pleased. I sense God sees that in all of us. And when we start to see each other like, you know, what's Richard going to look like in 10,000 years from now? In C.S. Lewis's words, to paraphrase, 
you will be some, someone that I would have a strong inclination to worship. That's how godly and how good we are. And we forget that, but it's sweet when we remember it. <laughs> Thomas, that's really cool. <laughs> and it sort of takes me up to the 40,000 foot level as a parent. And, yeah. and as a priesthood leader, as a friend, that I love the word you used, anxiety. And culturally, we've created a lot of checklists and a lot of timing and a lot of things need to be done in the right order. And I have certainly have tried to move away from that a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Examples of that, I remember a couple of young men in our ward just looked me in the eye and said, Bishop, I, this isn't the right time for me to serve a mission. <laughs> and I felt sort of a responsibility to get them on a mission. but. The more I thought about it, the more I just, I just, I'm going to trust them. They seem close enough with God and close enough to who they are that I just, it took a little bit of courage on my part. Yeah. I just felt yeah. this responsibility to move everybody along. But I just, in a couple of situations, um, just said, you know, I trust you. Yeah. And and maybe that's helpful for me just to hear that. And then I felt like maybe I didn't create a wedge between them and and gave them space to do this on their own terms. And just maybe that's the way heavenly parents are with us. And yeah. So just some thoughts that fit, feel yeah. well with me with what you've said. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that, Richard. I don't know if you've heard this quote, but I read it a lot on the podcast. Henry Noro, and I don't know if you've read some, read some of his. Um, it doesn't come to mind. Henry Norwin, you said? Yeah, I, but he talks about the wounded healer. Ah, okay. I'm familiar and with I the phrase. And I love this quote because I think we're all this, and you are this, and I'm this, and I think Christ is the best wounded healer. But a minister's service, and that's you, will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the, what, by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. Mm. I just love that. Yeah, so I you, love that too. That's beautiful. I think that's one of your gifts to our body of Christ is just your ability, because you're open about the wounded feelings you felt, and we're all wounded. And I think then we become the ability to be the healer. Mm. And that maybe would be the one of the greatest compliments I could give to you is your ability to heal other people and bring hope. And that is a Christ-like attribute. So any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners, Thomas? Well, you've been so kind, and I just have really appreciated the spirit of the conversation, Richard. Um, yeah, what more haven't we covered? Um, the good news is supremely good, right? I mean, the gospel. Um, I, I just, you know, feel into my own trajectory, like the life experiences I've had, um, just the love I have in my heart and the opportunity to talk to you about this unfurling vision of Zion. And I am profoundly hopeful at uh, how God's love for us and, you know, the spirit that just saturates us and all of the hosts of angels in heaven who are just cheering for our success. Um, it's it's good to be alive and it's you know good to be in this gospel and this conversation with you thank you thomas <laughs> you just give me hope and our listeners hope and a great perspective and and thank you thomas mcconkey for being on our podcast and thank our listeners for joining us on another episode of listen learn and love <laughs>